this episode of the clear out was recorded on the 15th of december 2021 at home in wicklow and it is an hour and 20 minutes of christmas movies of talking about what makes christmas movies good great wonderful rewatchable addictive essential and i talk about the movies that i particularly cherish i talk about movies that are worth watching in my opinion but of a lesser quality and there are many omissions and that is not an accident that is not oversight that is intentional i only talked about the ones that i like and if you like older hollywood movies you will enjoy listening to this i think there are a lot of names and dates and uh, i try to try to summarize each movie and what makes it good and there are a few digressions here and there as always and then to conclude to conclude today's episode a little christmas treat in the form of a song so i hope you last that long uh, i hope you like what you're here and i hope you're feeling christmassy i'll see you there real soon cheers Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. Welcome to the Christmas movies episode. Ooh, how exciting! Yes, this week's episode is going to be all about the movies. I'm going to go right there to that place, the movies I love to watch at Christmas. And I'll try to offer my own theory of what makes a great Christmas movie and why there will be many many omissions from this list Uh, I've been looking forward to doing this one because I do love the movies I have always done loved the movies ever since I was a little fella and that is that, that is a reason that is probably the reason why the Christmas movie experience is still something quite sacred to me (laughs) and and much much less so much less so to my daughter and even to my wife um it's funny the the weekend just gone i i organized a little christmas gathering uh for my daughter I suggested to her that we'd have a Christmas movie afternoon, a Christmas movies and hot chocolate afternoon for herself and some of her pals. And my vision was two Christmas favourites back to back and a couple of couches full of happy children drinking hot chocolate and eating marshmallows and popcorn and treats just blissfully immersing themselves in the Christmas vibes radiating from the TV. And uh, the closer we got to the day, the more my my wife and daughter uh, became very vocal naysayers. And the basic gist was, you know, no one's going to sit still and watch two movies. They're not you. (laughs) Uh, and you know, my daughter it almost became like out and out anarchy she was just like no what's 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 so great about 
blooming Christmas movies anyway. I mean, this this is just sacrilege, sacrilege, in you know, to my mind. And the you know the morning of the the party, I was having I got into this kind of row with the pair of them because I was like, "What the hell? You know, I'll, I'll cancel the whole bloody thing. You can stick it up your bum." <laughs> And I had to, I just had to cede, I had to cede ground and accept that they were completely right, actually. Um, it was my little vicarious <laughs> thrill. Um, so I just had to let it go. I had to let go of my, my desire for it to be what um, what I wanted it to be. I had to let that go and just let it be what it was. And what it was, was a gang of, a gang, I mean a small group of kids. I think we had six in the end. Um, and they, they sat down to watch... Uh, Home Alone um, which doesn't really make my list to be honest although it has a couple of moments Um, and then after about 45 minutes um, once they started watching the movie settled in and I'd brought them all big mugs of steaming hot chocolate with marshmallows and sprinkles and fresh whipped cream that they had they, they, they reached their kind of saturation point of both the hot chocolate and the movie and the movie was put on pause and they just sort of ran around and, and did their own thing uh, in my daughter's bedroom and in the uh, the TV room for the, the following few hours. And they had a great time. But uh, the movies remained unwatched. And grand, whatever, that was fun. And parents came to pick them up. We had a little bit of mulled wine and it was nice. And it was a little bit, a little bit of an early taste of Christmas. It was quite, it was, it was very pleasant. Um, but... I was trying to just put it into context and go, you know, the, 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 the modern child, the child of 2021. I mean, yeah, like you think of it that way, like we're two, two decades into the 21st century and the abundance and proliferation and availability of technology and content is is fundamentally unlimited and children get to watch movies now i mean i shouldn't say that like it's an absolute uh you know universal experience but they certainly are able to watch movies all year round and they're able to watch stuff all year round on various devices from various platforms whether it's uh, whether it's YouTube, whether it's um, their home sort of DVD collections, whether it's downloaded movies, whether it's on streaming platforms, whether they've got Disney Plus, uh, where you can just get all that cherished content, those cherished movies. Um, and the Disney Channel, of course, takes in Star Wars and the Marvel movies, amongst other things. So... There's, I suppose there's a sense that, you know, the old movie experience is simply quite pedestrian. It's quite mundane. It's quite everyday. And there is very little to make it special or give it a sense of occasion. Uh, Now, that said, I think, I mean, I've taken my daughter to the cinema uh, a handful of times so far in her life. We used to go every now and then in Melbourne. There was a great cinema nearby uh, near you know near where we lived, and they occasionally put on old movies, and we managed to catch a couple of old Disney movies there, which was rather nice. Um, 
and the cinema experience, I think, is always a bit special. But but even still, even still, I think less so, less so for the modern child. And that was certainly, I think that was a very relevant contributory factor to 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 the kind of lack of engagement or fully committed engagement you know to 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 the movies that were shown at the weekend or the one the half of a movie that was shown at the weekend and grant whatever it is what it is um movies occupy a very special place in my heart and they are very much a part of my uh very much a part of my world and very much a part of my my childhood my cultural evolution my cultural shaping and I was reminding myself this morning uh, in anticipation of recording this that when I was a kid um, and I guess so like I'm a child of the, the 70s and 80s and movies were still very much a, a big deal and it wasn't easy to see lots and lots of movies. You were very much dependent on what the TV channels scheduled and broadcast at certain times of the year. You were dependent on having, uh, you know, having a video player, getting a VCR. And we didn't get one for quite a while. So we were we were late to that party. And I remember like friends, we had a friend who used to have a video player and he'd bring it over and he'd set it up and bring videos to watch Um my parents, I'm trying to remember, I know Fort Apache, the Bronx, the Paul Newman, I think it's a 1980 movie, sort of a kind of a gritty look at, at you know, pre-gentrified New York and Ken Wall was the younger cop, the partner to the older Paul Newman. Ken Wall later went on to be in the, the great TV series Wise Guy as an undercover cop that was an early showcase for uh, Kevin Spacey incidentally um, but I remember that was one of the videos that was brought into the house and more memorably Warriors yeah Warriors um, I'm just going to go blank on the director's name and I'm kicking myself also New York based and that was just like a night of gang warfare through the streets and alleyways and subway stations and parks of New York. Uh, I want to say Walter Hill. I'm not sure if that's correct. Again, around the 1980 mark, uh, culminating in a fight between gang leaders down at the beach. It wasn't Coney Island, was it? Oh, I don't know. Anyway, but you know, quite adult movies. I mean, if that was 80, 81, I was only seven or eight, my daughter's age. Um... And I don't know how I managed to get to watch them. My parents, oh, maybe my parents just let me. Uh, I didn't watch them on my own. I know that much. But that was a big deal. That was an event. You know, movies being brought into the house. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, the, the whole Christmas movie thing, what I was about to, what I was about to recall was when the, the TV Guide came out, the Christmas edition of the TV Guide. And for us here in Ireland, that was the... RTE guide and still is the RTE guide to this day that's Radio Telefiche Aaron now if you can't work out what that stands for because that's Oscailga God love you but Radio you got it you know what that is Telefiche I think you know what that is 
Erin, Ireland. So it's the National Broadcaster of Ireland. And that TV guide, I used to wait in anticipation for its release so I could get it and sit down with my pen and circle all the movies I planned to watch over the Christmas period. And of course, the TV schedule changed for Christmas and many, many more movies were put on from early in the morning right through the day. And it was just a a feast of old movies. And again, I don't know what sort of licensing rights there were or what RT had to pay, but they were old Hollywood classics, top to bottom. Um, Now, of course, the, the, the sort of the tentpole movie on the schedule was always the Christmas night movie and that that often had no Christmas relevance whatsoever it was just a big often a big blockbuster of recent years and that was scheduled in the prime time slot of eight o'clock or nine o'clock on a Saturday sorry on a Christmas night and for I'm thinking of movies like Raiders of the Lost Ark, Superman, E.T. that kind of thing and they were that was a major event and you again I'd be planning my Christmas night around getting down in front of that TV and settling in. And so I have this association from my childhood of just, you know, totally indulged consumption of old movies. And, you know, Laurel and Hardy movies would have been featured there. The Marx Brothers, that kind of thing. And then even the TV schedules, they'd throw in some perennial favourites. So... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, uh, you know, after Roald Dahl's uh, children's book, that was on every Christmas, to my recollection, and that was a fixture. And in later years, another fixture took hold. And I say later years because <laughs> it was a it was a contemporary film, 1982's The Snowman. I'm going to make that the first of my Christmas favourites. So in 1982, an animated short, it's only 26 minutes long, and it was an adaptation of a Raymond Briggs book. So Raymond Briggs was a British children's storyteller, illustrator, and amongst other characters, he created Fungus the Bogeyman, and he had a couple of sort of yeah sort of darkly humorous santa claus father christmas stories which which basically presented father christmas as uh, a rather fed up jaded um you know single man who found the whole christmas thing a drag but you know he did it it was his duty And he had two famous books, one Father Christmas and two Father Christmas Goes on Holiday or Father Christmas on Holiday. Um, Really just beautiful, beautifully drawn. Uh, This this kind of lovely coloured pencil work. And my favourite pages from those books used to do like a, they were laid out like comic books. So with multiple panels on each page. And my favourite sections of those books was when you would sometimes put in a two-page single image and I found them absolutely bewitching. They were just such beautifully drawn, atmospheric images. Um, 
he also later did you know more political stuff um, he did a really chilling um you know nuclear fallout uh book called when the wind blows and looked at focused on this middle-aged english couple who thought their sort of world war ii strategies you know down in the bunker would protect them from uh, a nuclear radioactive fallout and over the course of the book you see them getting sicker and sicker it's a really grim not a kid's book really he also did one about the falklands war and caricaturized maggie thatcher and the argentinian leader um as the sort of you know monstrous hideous war mongering maniacs um so yeah there was a, he always had this kind of political streak as well but his children's stuff was was absolutely beautiful and the snowman is it's just a beautifully told wordless story so the picture book has no has no dialogue no language and again it's laid out in his style of the panels it's a very simple story of a little boy who builds a snowman at Christmas time and that night after he's built the snowman, the snowman comes to life and they have this one night of magic and it packs an almighty punch when at the end of the story the little boy runs out to the garden and the snowman has done what all snowmen do and has dissolved this is a this is a spoiler, but this 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 short came out in 1982. So um, hard luck if you haven't seen it. It doesn't matter; it'll still get you, even if you know. I remember sitting down to watch this uh, with my niece, probably about 15 years ago. So she would have been about six, and we were watching it in my parents' house over one Christmas, and she hadn't seen it before, and we watched it, and there was just this sort of silence at the end the credits roll and then she just dissolved into tears and threw herself into me for a little cry <laughs> oh dear desperate desperate stuff but beautiful a beautifully told beautifully told simply told a universal story and famous also certainly back in back when it came out it became famous for the song walking in the air which Alad Jones, a Welsh boy soprano, uh, brought to fame in the in the the UK and Irish charts. Um, but he didn't actually sing the original version in the short itself. I can't remember who that was, but it was Alad Jones who made it famous. So fair play to Alad. Thanks very much for that. Okay, so moving on, the Snowman. Stick that in your list of that's that's one to watch, and that that has become a perennial a perennial favourite in this household. Uh, well this household this is our first Christmas in this household so it's about to become a perennial favourite in this household but we have been watching it with my daughter for the last few years so before I go on to start naming other uh, other movies other Christmas movies other classics I want to talk about what makes like what constitutes a great Christmas movie because there are so many terrible Christmas movies and for me, the the simplest point of separation is when when the plot or the story is built around a, a contrivance to 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 the, the the contrivance 
is there to serve the setting up of Christmas mayhem or Christmas shenanigans or Christmas sort of plot entanglements. And those films are by far less successful, in my opinion, even though there are some really honourable exceptions within that group. Most of the Christmas movies that I love, they aren't actually that contrived. They're usually quite integral, like the story and the the, the coinciding of the story and Christmas. There's there's organic storytelling and there's organic character development. And in those stories, the stakes are the stakes are high. Something very profound is at stake generally. And I think the Christmas movies that fail, they don't have that element. They don't have that element of something really serious is at stake. Um, and those those lesser Christmas movies are often, they're often really, they're, they're, they're just... They're just structures that are set up to hold 90 minutes or two hours of sentiment. And sentiment, you know, I'm sentimental and I'll go, I'll go to that place. If I'm taken on the journey and it's earned, and I've discussed this in uh, earlier, an earlier episode of the podcast, I'll go there if it's earned. If you take me on the journey, if I care about the character, if I feel the situation is worth following and it, it it holds together i'm happy to open that part of myself and have that gooey moment i don't mind i mean i'll, 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 I'll cry at anything basically um but sentiment without without something that is there to be earned there to be worked for without something to be overcome, without a sense of real threat, um, then, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just the gloopy, fondanty, sugary mess that you'd find inside a cream egg. (laughs) And I should know, because I used to eat those bad boys by the dozen. Uh, Not quite by the dozen, but uh, yeah, if you ever want some intense sugar hit, that's the way to go. And actually, look, a quick digression. Speaking of sugar hits, there was, we were, we were like, there was a deluge of sweets, of sugary treats and candies and fizzy, chewy jellies uh, brought into the house for the little Christmas movie, Hot Chocolate Afternoon last weekend. And for the first time in years, I had this terrible impulse to binge on my old favourites, the fizzy, the fizzies, the fizzy ones. I mean, my my story is, uh, in my family, I was always the sober one. I was always the sober, non-drug-taking one. And I grew up in, you know, in, within my family and, the fr- and friends of the family and my brothers, everyone else was knocking back the drink and there were drugs and all sorts of things. And I used to just sit back and have a cup of tea. Uh, my addiction, apart from movies, my addiction was sweets. My addiction was sugar. And even when I was in university, in my little drawer at my study desk, I'd pull that open 
and inside I wouldn't find you wouldn't find uh, illicit substances you wouldn't find hash or grass or a joint you wouldn't find dubious uh, pills or anything like that you'd find sherbet dip dabs little bags of fizzy sugar that you could dip a lollipop into and suck the sherbet off the pop so there that's the line you gotta suck the sherbet off the pop uh and i paid i paid for my sins over the years uh i had some terrible teeth issues um around the time my daughter was born actually about seven seven or eight years ago i I spent a lot of money on just getting some repair work done and oh i swore never again so i mean at that stage i was around the 40 41 mark so that was you know the, the the larger part of 40 years of intense sugar consumption and binging on those junky sweets and i'd knocked it all on the head more or less still eating chocolate and things like that but i really didn't go for the sweeties anymore but last weekend i did and my goodness my gums have only stopped aching now it's about three or four days later uh, uh yeah so th- over the next few days just putting the toothbrush to my gums my gums were howling so um there you go wasn't i a silly boy okay anyway a digression so yeah sentiment and sugary gloppy glue and goop no thanks something has to be at stake so what is at stake in a great christmas movie let me tell you i think really and this goes back to two episodes ago when i was talking about a christmas carol in a way, Dickens made the template right there. You have the person who has shut themselves off from human kindness. The person who has shut themselves off from the receipt of human love. The person who has poured their energy into accumulation and materialism and the acquisition of wealth and the cost is the person's own heart their own sense of compassion or empathy for their fellow travelers and scrooge is the epitome charles dickens's scrooge is the epitome of this character this loveless misanthropic cynical cold embittered character now we know from the story that scrooge was in love as a child but he 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 became so distracted by his business life and his success as a business person and as a, a financial mind that the girl he loved walked away and his heart turned to stone and it's you know it it, it, I i suppose the power of the story is that at the very last scrooge is given the chance to repent he's given the chance to redeem himself and by journeying through his past and seeing the present and then being scared witless by the prospect of an ignominious end in his future christmas he he clutches he clutches desperately for life he clutches desperately for repentance 
he clutches desperately for a chance to redeem himself and the focus of his redemption is the Cratchit family and Tiny Tim, uh, the, the, the crippled son of his head accountant, Bob Cratchit. And the movie has been, of course, you know, the, the movie has been uh, presented, the, the book A Christmas Carol has been presented in movie form uh, you know, quite a lot. Um, now, the one version of it that I haven't ever seen in its entirety is... Uh, the old English one with Alistair Sim as as Scrooge. And that's an old, very kind of stark black and white treatment, which I'm not sure when it dates to. Is it the, it might be the 40s. Um, maybe not as early as that. And I've only ever seen extracts of that. And that, I'm going I'm to put that on my list for this Christmas. But there are others. There's the Bill Murray kind of spoofy, modernized version, Scrooged, which a lot of people like. I think that's from 1988. I never really cared for it. It's just too, again, it's a contrivance and it's just, it's a bit, it's just too hit and miss. Um, and then there's also, there's the 70s musical version with Albert Finney. Again, I don't think it stands up that well. Um Robert Zemeckis, uh, with his love of technical advancement, he did a motion capture version with Jim Carrey. But so again, animated, but based on the the, the movements of the of, of the actors in the cast. Um, he earlier did the Polar Express. Um, the same technology was used by Steven Spielberg when he made his Tintin movie about ten years ago. It doesn't work for me. That that style doesn't work. You get these strangely lifeless uh animated figures that just are completely devoid of warmth and nuance and subtly subtlety they're dead-eyed and kind of grim they're like reanimated zombie characters of who they should be and it's just a complete turn off it doesn't work and the essence of a good christmas movie in particular is that 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 life that spirit should course through the movie it should course through the characters that we are being asked to invest in because through their struggle through their endeavor and through their interaction with the world in which they are placed that is how the illusion of whatever passes for christmas spirit whatever passes for something like christmas magic that's how it comes to pass in that medium and it doesn't work in those stop motion uh renderings in my opinion i think they're dead lifeless joyless films interesting as curiosities interesting as uh, technical exercises but that's it just let it go doesn't work uh too stiff um my choice then for Christmas Carol, and let's make this number two on my list of favorite Christmas movies. These aren't in order. These aren't my my favorites, but I'm just letting I'm just letting this go where it goes. And as the movies come up, I'm dropping in the ones I will return to every year without fail. The Muppet Christmas Carol. I know you laugh, and laugh you will again if you watch the Muppet Christmas Carol, which is from 1992, and I. Th- think jim henson had passed away at that stage so it was his son brian henson's first movie to uh, you know his directorial debut 
and it's it's a lot of fun there are some very nice songs in it and you have as a wonderful a wonderful scrooge michael kane one of his best performances in my opinion michael kane guilty guilty sometimes maybe often particularly at that time in his career of dialing it in of turning up and just taking the paycheck he jokes about this himself but he is a brilliant scrooge in a muppet christmas carol and he plays it dead straight he is not in on the joke he lets the muppets be the comedians and they are but he plays it as straight as can be and he's bloody brilliant and the puppet work is lovely and the ghosts of christmas past present and future are exactly what you'd like them to be and the the stock characters from the muppet show are put to great use um but michael kane is excellent in that and he's a very very believable and sympathetic scrooge in the end and his turnaround at the end when he's been granted another chance and he sticks his head out of his window and shouts down to the little boy the little boy is in this case a beautiful muppet rabbit uh, and he shouts down boy what day is this why it's christmas day sir and it's just a great it's a great moment it's a beautiful reaction you go on the journey with him the only bit that's dodgy is when he sort of dances to the Cratchit's house. He kind of skips along. <laughs> Not a great skipper, Michael Caine. Not renowned for his physical prowess. Uh, much mocked in Escape to Victory, the 1980 football, World War II football movie directed by John Huston. Um, speaking of John Huston, let's throw in another one of my favourites. And this one is really... Hmm, what do I want to say? It's it's a lovely piece and it has wonderful texture and it is specifically Irish and it's specifically Dublin and it is John Huston's adaptation of James Joyce's short story The Dead and it stars... Angelica Houston and Donal McCann um, and a host of Irish actors and it's basically set in a, a dinner party in the I guess it's the early 1900s um, I didn't I didn't go and research this one today to get my to get my facts but that was made in again the mid to late 80s and it's sort of a society party um, and Donna McCann and Angelica Houston are very well healed and it's it's really nice. There's just great sort of ensemble playing and it taps into something about a very particular type of Irish hospitality uh, at Christmas time and there are songs and there's drunkenness and there's repressed emotion and it it all leads to a, a really lovely sort of end scene with Angelica Houston looking very wistfully out the window and t- 
telling her husband Donald McCann about I think it's about a dream she had but that one's well worth checking out if you can find it The Dead by John Huston and of course John Huston had that relationship with Ireland had that fondness for Ireland his love of Ireland he had a home in the west of Ireland Angelica Huston spent a lot of her childhood in the west of Ireland and so in a way I think it was a, a long cherished project um, that he wanted to to bring to the screen and it stands up really really well lovely performances and you know a, a lovely sort of snapshot of um you know ireland before it really emerged into the the, the modern independent state so when ireland was still um and dublin i suppose was still the uh, you know a, a city of of the of the empire um so that kind of context um i think it you know it, it has its place yeah very interesting the dead really really nice um okay so the i asked the question you know what's at stake and i spoke about a christmas carol and i'm i'm, I'm i was arguing that a christmas carol lays down the template um, now, in James Joyce's The Dead, that is much less present or much less obvious. It's a bit more, um, it's, it's much more subtle, I suppose. There's, but there's a great sense of yearning, particularly in the Angelica Houston character, a yearning for connection. Um, and yeah, something something really lovely there. So I suppose she's seeking the restoration of, of love. And that's just one of the things that's at stake in these really good Christmas movies. Uh, I wrote down a little list. I mean, the the restoration of love, the restoration of one's humanity, the restoration of faith, the restoration of credibility, status, the restoration of of magic. Now, magic we can use as a metaphor for romance. And, and vice versa the the suspension of the suspension of reality the suspension of of those things that make us cynical the suspension of those things that grind us down and just the willingness for a moment to open up a door and let in some light let in some love let in uh you're letting in a ceasefire in a way, a cessation of hostilities. Um, and speaking of that, if you want to go down that road in a very literal sense, you could do worse than check out the French film Joyeux Noël, uh, Happy Christmas, which is set in World War One and inspired by the, the famous uh, ceasefire that unofficially happened, uh, spontaneously occurred between... The soldiers uh, hiding in their trenches on Christmas Eve uh, in the middle of the First World War. So it involved the Germans and the French. And in this movie, it's a Scottish battalion. And they, yeah, they have this sort of very tentative, um, a very tentative sort of broaching of peace that is initiated by the the Scottish soldiers singing Christmas songs and singing songs with their their bagpipes. And then the Germans sing a version of Silent Night in German and the French are just bemused by what they're hearing. 
um, and amongst the German number is an opera singer and he hears the, the Scottish guys and the Scottish guys cheer after their, the German's rendition of, a, of Silent Night and then the, the, the German opera singer you know a soldier but he emerges from the trench and starts singing um, Come All Ye Faithful and a, a, a Scottish bagpiper played by Gary Lewis I think steps out from the trench and starts moving across towards him look it's again it's sentiment it's a bit one note the whole thing it could have been probably done a bit more subtly but not too bad not too bad it's not on my it's not on my must watches but if you want to go back for something rooted in history you could do worse that's Joya Noel Happy Christmas and I think hmm 10 years old or maybe it's not as much as 20 years old I think it might be 2010 it might be older than that again but anyway okay so I'm going to kick on the the list so I'm going to give you a list of some old movies because I tend to gravitate towards the older movies and the older Hollywood product and there's a list of four or five movies that are Christmas movies. They're worth watching, but they do fall into that lesser category, the ones that are set up with a, a sort of a contrivance to bring the characters together and then it coincides with Christmas and that always just keeps me a little bit out of it. But there are four or five here from the 1940s and I'll start with uh, Remember the Night. Now, Remember the Night is a 1940 movie starring Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck and directed by Mitchell Lysen, but it was written by Preston Sturges uh, and he's always an interesting one because of his own uh, legacy of his sort of brilliantly kind of funny and um, socially aware comedy, kind of drama comedies that he uh, directed uh, later in his career. But Remember the Night is, yeah, it's a cute one and very simple idea. Fred McMurray is a DA, a district attorney, and he's in court to prosecute a woman who has been caught shoplifting an expensive um, an expensive bracelet from a jewellery store. And he just doesn't want the hassle of having to prosecute the case. And he just wants to go home for Christmas, for the Christmas period. And he convinces the judge to postpone the case until after Christmas. And the outcome of this is he realises that the, the woman is going to end up in jail over the Christmas period. And he feels bad and he pays for her to be bailed out. And she ends up going on the road trip with him, the road trip home. And they discover they're from the same state, uh, Indiana. And he agrees to bring her to her family home, which she hasn't been to since she was a little girl. And that's actually one of the more affecting, one of the more affecting scenes in the movie where they arrive at this quite dilapidated old house. And, you know, you gotta, I suppose you've got to recall in 1940, uh, America wasn't really out of the, the depression yet. They were just about to go to war, um, and so there. These movies often have a very bleak side to them, and certainly when the mother eventually comes to the door, she's 
just this severe and disapproving stern woman and she has absolutely no interest in a reconciliation with her daughter she's scathing and she uses the phrase it was good riddance to bad rubbish when she left referring to the young Barbara Stanwyck Um, and so Stanwyck ends up going home to Fred McMurray's own family for Christmas and they're lovely and they have a very nice time and there's a bizarre character in that family I couldn't work out if he was just a neighbour or he's meant to be uh, Fred McMurray's cousin but this sort of doofusy long-suffering um, you know helper at the house played by Stanley Holloway who didn't he go on to play the cowardly lion in the Wizard of Oz um, quite an absurd uh, but <laughs> hilarious character uh, Willy, chilly Willy. Um, anyway, that's Remember the Night. And it has a bit of edge. That scene with the mother, that had edge. And, and it ends, in, you know, it ends like a morality tale where they end up back in court at the end. They've fallen in love. And he's trying to, he ends up sort of uh, trying to gain the jury's sympathy for her by giving her a really tough interrogation. Um, even though he's he and she are in love and she just cracks and says no I want to confess I want to confess I did do it I did do it I need to I need to sort of serve my time and that's more or less how the movie ends uh, he's down comforting her in the cell underneath the courthouse and she's like you'll stand by me when I when the sentence is handed down and he's like of course I will my darling the end <laughs> bizarre but you know yeah anyway listen What's really interesting, you know, amongst other things, what's interesting about it, it's, it's when you see these actresses when they were younger, like Barbara Stanwyck. Like I typically associate Barbara Stanwyck first and foremost with double indemnity as the femme fatale who lures Fred McMurray into her web of deceit and sex and murder. Um, and it's interesting to see these actresses playing you know sort of ingenues or younger version of themselves where their screen personas were being developed uh she's really yeah rather lovely in remember the night now remember the night does have a problematic element in that there is an african-american actor in it who is fred mcmurray's like manservant basically it's bizarre like fred mcmurray's in his city apartment and there's uh, a black manservant and as was not unusual for those times in Hollywood, he's playing a sort of a a man child, this kind of, you know, bumbling, stuttering, you know, trepidatious, fearful, you know, black man child. And it's really uncomfortable. I found it uncomfortable to watch. Now, I'm not going to cancel the movie. It is of the times. That actor, his name was Fred Toons, T-O-O-N-E-S. But his his acting name, what he went out as in his credits, was Snowflake. What about that? So, obviously very ironic. And he had a lengthy career. A lengthy career, you know, in lots of westerns. Um, and was, you know, very you know, highly regarded, apparently. But those were the pickings. Servants um, and, you know those kind of lesser kind of doofusy sort of roles and his name in the movie is rufus so i instinctively kind of dubbed him rufus the doofus but um yeah if you watch it that's that's quite jarring to see his you know his, his character and the way he's carrying on and you know it's enormously 
patronizing within the the context of the movie um but i guess as i said like you know those were the times um so it's it's fascinating and uncomfortable but there you go he's not in it very long um Barbara Stanwyck let me see no no I'm not going to go to her I'm going to go to chronological order another one in this list the man who came to dinner the man who came to dinner and this is a 1942 movie directed by William Keeley and written by the Epstein brothers Julius and Philip who amongst other things wrote the screenplay for Casablanca and Arsenic and Old Lace and the Betty Davis vehicle Mrs. Skeffington um, so quite a quite a well written, witty movie, and basically it's about this uh, ferocious uh, drama critic played by Monty Woolley, white haired, white bearded man, and he ends up basically trapped in this house in the countryside at Christmas because he slips and you know damages his ankle, and. The whole movie then uh, is, you know, is, is contrived to revolve around keeping him happy and you know, for Christmas to happen around him uh, in spite of his cantankerousness and his misanthropy. And uh, Betty Davis is his assistant. And again, you're looking at a young Betty Davis before she became the sort of leading lady. And so she's kind of a, a romantic... Uh, softer version of the, the you know the Betty Davis we would see in later years, uh, so kind of interesting for that. Monty Woolley plays that character somewhat, somewhat um, one note. Um, it's just a little bit too OTT. But then you know a lot of these actors, particularly you know the actors who were the older characters in these movies of the the early forties. You know, these were people who were born in the the nineteenth century. I mean, these were you know people who were born in you know the eighteen seventies and the eighteen eighties. Um, and I mean, I just think like it's fascinating when you go back and look and you see these characters um, and these actors and think like that their background. You know, born in sort of latter Dickensian times, and so there's a link to the the world of a Christmas Carol. Uh, but there you go. The man who came to dinner. So a contrivance to bring them all together and lots of shenanigans and plot twists and comings and goings. And in the end, he ends up you know, faking his injury because he doesn't want to leave or participate in certain events. But anyway, one, one that's, that's worth, worth a look. Uh, next in that list is 1945's Christmas in Connecticut. Christmas in Connecticut and again what we have here is a contrivance we have a food a food writer who in her magazine articles presents herself as a blissfully happy housewife and all her food writing is about homely cooking and home making and home baking but in actual fact she's a cynical city girl who doesn't live in the countryside at all and she is played by Barbara Stanwyck. So there's Barbara Stanwyck back with us again. And the contrivance of the story is a returning war hero um, wants to spend Christmas with her. And it's sort of a, it's a publicity thing managed by her magazine. And she has to kind of come clean to her 
editor and he says don't worry you can go down to my house in the country and we'll we'll make it out we'll make out that it's your own home and that that's where you do all your stuff and the soldier can come and visit and we'll do photos and so again it's all set up for you know confusion and mistakes uh it's quite cute i think it's dennis morgan is the war hero he's a bit wet um but a nice little um extra from that movie is that there's an irish actress in it who's really funny and she's like the housekeeper um you know the 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 top sort of home help in the house and she's played by a belfast actress called una o'connor now she was born in 1880 so she was 65 or probably 64 when she filmed christmas in connecticut and she had a really long career um and her last, the last movie she made was in 1952. Um, but maybe a few years before that, and for the last kind of five years, she died in 1957. Her her last movie was called Don Calogero. And it was an Italian movie starring another Irish actor, Barry Fitzgerald, as a priest who inherits money and has to decide what to do with it. Um, now, Barry Fitzgerald, uh, he, he was a staple in American movies for years, born in 1888. But that movie's interesting. I haven't seen it. it was, I was just reading about it. Apparently, that was a sort of a, a pro-communist movie about distribution of wealth. And the title, the full title in Italian is something like Don Calagero Must Come or Don Calagero Is Coming. And apparently that's in, that was inspired by a an Italian expression the, now, I don't know it in Italian, but it was translated as the moustached man is coming or the moustached man must come. And that was a reference to Joe Stalin, Joseph Stalin and uh, Joseph Stalin as the sort of the face of communism. So communism must come. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. But yeah, Uno Connor, she's really good in that movie. So that was uh, a nice little extra. Um, OK, moving swiftly on. 1947 gave us two movies one is absolutely straight down the middle you know an absolutely straight down the middle christmas classic and that's a miracle miracle on 34th street which again we have an irish connection in that the irish actress maureen o'hara is in it as the mother of the cynical daughter who does not believe in santa claus the daughter was played by natalie wood um and Miracle on 34th Street actually stands up pretty well. And Natalie Wood is good. And Maureen O'Hara is good. And Edmund Gwen, the English actor, plays a very charming um, Chris Kringle. Santa Claus made flesh. And it's, it's a nice movie. It's got a little edge to it because his sanity is called into question. He plays Santa Claus, or sorry, he plays Chris Kringle. He's turned up to be in the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. And then he decides he likes being around so much coming up to Christmas that he'll hang on. And he works in Macy's, the, the department store, and starts telling everyone that he really is the real thing. And then the authorities are like, hold on a second, pal. You've lost your, you've lost your marbles. And it goes to, you know, the, the climactic court scene where the love interest of Maureen O'Hara, the, the, he, he, he makes the case that if we can believe if you can believe in God you can believe in Chris Kringle um, it's done quite nicely the same year and then Miracle on 34th Street it's, uh, it's close enough to being on my, my list but I don't watch it every year I must say but I might give it a lash again this year it's close but it's not quite there um, again just a tiny bit contrived 
Another contrived one that's worth looking if you can find it is called It Happened on Fifth Avenue. And this is from 1947, directed by Roy Del Ruth. Now, Roy Del, Roy Del Ruth was a director who came up with Mac Sennett. Mac Sennett was a producer of comedies and he dubbed himself the king of comedy. And for yet another Irish connection, Mac Sennett was born in Canada as Michael Sinnott and his parents were Irish immigrants. Um, and he was sort of the creator of the Keystone Cops, amongst other things. And he discovered people or put people like W.C. Fields in their first movies. Um, now, he, his end, he didn't end well. He failed to hold on to his talent and he returned to Canada in the 30s as a pauper. But he was about as big a name as you could get in comedy in the, uh, the, the in the twenties and thirties in American movies. And Roy Del Ruth uh, came out of his school, so to speak. And it happened on Fifth Avenue. Is it's a bit of a class comedy that takes place at Christmas, where a couple of homeless guys down on their luck. This is coming out of the war, um, no money, and what they do is every Christmas. One of them every Christmas breaks into this posh house on Fifth Avenue when the owners of the house head to Florida for the for the sun in in for the Christmas for the Christmas vacation, and so it's really the uh, the wisdom of the homeless guy and how he teaches the wealthy people to appreciate what they've got and you know to to value the Christmas spirit and community and there's love in the mix and it's 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 a good one and there's a lot of nice stuff in it. But again, the contrived aspect of it, it just shunts it into a lesser category for me. So we're, uh, we're honing in. We're honing in on the good ones. And I'm going to keep it pretty quick now. Um, so my kind of go-to ones, and these ones all satisfy my criteria of something at stake something serious at stake and they are and this is in no particular order these are sort of uh these are sort of equally cherished by me so an obvious one is frank capra's it's a wonderful life 1946 and it's a wonderful life tells the story of george bailey played by James Stewart, grows up in a small town and all he wants to do is get out and travel and see the world. But his sense of duty and decency compels him to sacrifice his holiday fund to keep his family's little savings bank open in the, you know, in the face of the big banker um, who wants to just own every scrap of property and own every mortgage in the community and James Stewart as George Bailey he toughs it out and he becomes a really cherished member of his community and it's really the story of how his life unravels and how his that the that decency that he is committed to and that sense of civic duty and community spirit that he has dedicated his life to has come at great personal cost the loss of his dreams and the loss of financial security and he decides to kill himself and so that's kind of the whole setup for the movie is you know we we learn about this man and we see how hard he's being pushed and he decides i can't bloody do it anymore 
and he throws himself off a bridge into swirling winter river waters. Uh, but he's rescued by an angel. And then the story is really how the angel shows him um, what that community, Bedford Falls, what it would have been like had he not been alive. And that is where Frank Capra delivers this nightmarish version of an utterly soulless, godless, you know, venal society that hasn't been touched by George Bailey's idealism and generosity of spirit and actual generosity and the lives that he touched and the lives that he changed. And it's a, it's a great moment, a very, you know, a very bleak and challenging moment in this, but, but brilliant storytelling. And the stakes couldn't be higher. And what's you know and, and, the, and the movie goes to it's 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 you know it's it's sort of happy ending where the company the, the, the community rallies to support this man who doesn't realize how much he's loved and cherished by those around him and you know that's the that's where we get it's a wonderful life when his spirit is restored and those stakes are life and death but what's interesting about that performance by james stewart is it was his first performance after being to war. James Stewart is the most highly decorated uh, military um, serviceman uh, that came out of Hollywood. Um, he joined the U.S. Army and went into the you know the, the sort of earlier iteration of the U.S. Air Force before they separated from the armed forces. And by the end of the war, he was a colonel. And he saw a huge amount of active duty. And the it has been commented upon by other film critics that he brought back from the war a darkness that wasn't really there in his pre-war performances. And, you know, James Stewart was the ultimate everyman. He was very accessible. There was something very readable and... Uh, palpably integral and decent about him and I think Americans liked to see themselves in him someone like Tom Hanks probably fits that bill now uh, Kevin Costner was the, the, the you know the most recent earlier iteration of that type of character um, but he came back from the war and he was a different man and he, he let that darkness inform a lot of his characters and a lot of his performances uh, he did a lot of westerns with Anthony Mann in the 50s and that darkness is there in them um, so just just interesting it, you know, it's, it's an interesting point of departure and that informs his that really does inform his performance uh, you know uh, in its most desperate moments in It's a Wonderful Life but it's, it's I think it's a fantastic movie and I love watching it and don't hesitate to, to throw it on at Christmas Um Another one of my massive, massive Christmas favourites also features James Stewart. And this is one of his pre-war performances. And that is Ernst Lubitsch's The Shop Around the Corner. The Shop Around the Corner is absolutely charming. It's witty. It's funny. It's romantic. And it cracks along. And it is set in a, a Budapest department store. And it basically centers around this love affair that is taking place in epistolary form in letter form between an absolutely lovely um, Margaret Sullivan and James Stewart and 
James Stewart, it has been said, was very much in love with Margaret Sullivan. She had helped him find his feet in Hollywood. They'd come up in theatre together and she kind of made con- you know, made the connections for him and encouraged him and kind of told him, kind of groomed him in how he should perform and audition. She ended up marrying Henry Fonda, but there was a real love between them and James Stewart, I think, always seemed to hold a torch for her. And there is a chemistry between them that's very very seems very real and very lovely in the shop around the corner and the stakes in the shop around the corner they are it, it's poverty it's like they they need she desperately needs to work in the shop she gets a job she desperately needs to hold on to her job uh james stewart uh he's falling in love with her in letter form and he desperately wants to have a, a better position so he can be a man of more stature um and there are various kind of plot devices that lead to misdirection and confusion and you know one of uh, Ernest Ernst Lubitsch's kind of stock company Felix Bressart is, is wonderful in this movie as one of the other workers in the shop who is just <laughs> he's, he's a very good friend to James Stewart Frank Morgan who played the Wizard of Oz is the boss of the shop and he finds out his wife is up to no good with one of the other workers in the shop who's an absolute prat uh, lots and lots to recommend about the shop around the corner um really really lovely and it all you know for for members of uh, my family who were in the retail business for many 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 years uh and know that experience of trying to sell and shift stock at christmas time and the busyness of christmas time and the performance of keeping the show running um they tap into that as well. I think it tap into that. That's all in there in the shop around the corner. And it all ends on close, a close of business on Christmas Eve. And finally, uh, James Stewart and Margaret Sullivan get to have that moment uh, of revelation. Um, now, he's been, he, 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 he finds out early enough that it is her that's writing the letters and he doesn't let her know. And you could argue that's a bit sneaky. But it works. It works in the context of the movie because Ernst Lubitsch was such a master and such a great stylist and had such enormous uh, humanity and affection for his characters. And again, the shop around the corner set in this sort of idealized Europe and Ernst Lubitsch was German and he had fled the the, uh, emerging Nazi regime in Germany. And his movies, in a way, were a counter to that. They were a, count, uh, a counter to that darkness and that cynicism and that horror. Um, and no one did it better. Um, I think, uh, was it Jean, uh, Jean Renoir said that Ernst Lubitsch invented modern Hollywood. So there was something about the sensibility uh, of him as a director as a creator as a taskmaster of ensembles he he elevated the movie form and everything else has been imitation since so that's a great one shop around the corner another one i love to watch um uh is the bishop's wife 1947 um a lovely romantic christmas comedy you know dramedy i suppose and it has Loretta Young as the wife of David Niven's priest, David 
Niven's uh, reverend preacher. And David Niven is desperately trying to raise funds for his church. And he is beholden to this very snotty, rich, older lady. And he's so stressed out trying to keep the church going and pay for the infrastructure and build something new and better that he has neglected his wife. So she has fallen into neglect and feels unloved, uncherished, and he can't quite see it. Um, But Cary Grant comes to town, a little angel, um, and he works his magic to try and make it all happen, bring them all together. And I find it absolutely charming. Um, Cary Grant's performance uh, Loretta Young, David Niven, uh, Monty Woolley has quite a nice role in this one as well. He, he was the guy in The Man Who Came to Dinner. He plays a, a professor, friend, a friend of David Niven's and Loretta Young's. And Cary Grant convinces them that they, they knew each other back in the day somewhere. And there's a funny scene where Cary Grant keeps magically refilling Monty Woolley's wine glass. Amongst other funny Cary Grant scenes, uh, one of the more memorable ones is when Cary Grant takes Loretta Young ice skating <laughs> at the local the local kind of city pond uh, or skating rink. And the you know, Henry Coster, the director, he clearly decided, right, Cary Grant won't be a convincing ice skater. So they just doubled in some virtuoso ice skater who does this amazing stuff. And then they cut to Cary Grant kind of going, ta-da, bouncing off the ice, going, oh, woof, woof. Um, funny stuff, but really, really nice. Um, the, the last two on my list are less obvious Christmas ones. They're not like pure, pure Christmas ones, but they're very lovely nonetheless. Uh, I love watching Meet Me in St. Louis um, from Vincent Minnelli, uh, 1944, set in um, St. Louis. Louis, um, in 1903, the, the, it's the year leading up to the 1904 World Fair. And I think Meet Me in St. Louis is exceptionally good. And I, I argue that it's the sort of, it sets the template for sitcoms because you have this family rolling through their family dramas at different times of year with their different events and different romances and different things at stake. And we see them evolve and we get to know them. And really, we're, we're invited to, to move through the movie um, with Judy Garland's character. And she gets one of the most magical Christmas moments in all movie history, where towards the end of the movie, where it has been revealed to them, the father, the, 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 the distressed and sort of confounded un-understanding father who doesn't get what all these women in his family are up to where he goes I'm taking a new job and we're all getting the hell out of here and it means the end of a lot of their their dreams and their associations with their family home and where they grew up and it's a you know it's an unfolding of you know smaller and larger kind of dramas and tragedies for the individual members of the family and the one of the youngest daughters goes out in a rage and smashes all the snowmen in the garden and Judy Garland goes up to comfort her in her bedroom afterwards and gives us a wonderful rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. And again, if you think about it, that was 1944. So there was another year of the war to come 
and you know have yourself a merry little christmas the lyrics really speak to that um you know those who are dear to us will gather near to us once more um so yeah uh, i love that song and yes I'll, i'll have more to say about that in a little while uh so meet me in saint louis lovely and a little stealthy christmas movie a stealthy sneaky one that i mentioned a couple of weeks ago is lady and the tramp walt disney's lady and the tramp uh that's from 1955 it opens and closes at christmas time and again you're asking yourself what's at stake lady and the tramp again it's it's about it's about status it's about love it's about inclusion and it's really it's really very nice it's you know it's not considered one of the the great disney movies but i think it's quite underrated really nice voice work uh an almost tragic ending um yeah lovely and would you believe lady and the tramp is the highest grossing 1950s movie outside ben-hur and the ten commandments so um it punched well above its weight and it's yeah it's another little charmer and features some very memorable set pieces um like the siamese cats wrecking the house and blaming lady so she has a muzzle put on her and that ultimately is ultimately that's what leads her on her her adventure out into the real world um and her first encounter with uh, some real cynicism um yeah not a great movie for rats if you're a lover of rats you shouldn't watch lady and the tramp they don't they don't come off well um so that's it they those movies they're my they're my absolute golden ones locked in i will return to them every year without fail um you can throw in some extra ones from the 80s for the 80s kids so die hard christmas set gremlins also christmas set both stand up very well uh, gremlins produced by spielberg has a little bit of the spielberg magic in there um yeah yeah so those two um and then if you're looking for something if you want to get away from the the ick and the goo and the sentiment you know you could go for three very different christmas movies to finish up this this christmas movie bonanza you could watch terry terry zwigoff's bad santa from 2003 with an extraordinarily misanthropic cynical uh billy bob thornton uh, as the titular bad santa out in la trying to rip off department stores i think it was john ritter's last performance in that movie he's the extremely frustrated head of security at the department store where billy bob thornton is up to no good at all um really nice but you know it's 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 still got something integral in there that's what makes it good it's not just we're being cynical and nasty for the sake of it there is still there's actually still a little bit of christmas sentiment in the mix believe it or believe it not uh, it's a really good movie um it's brutal and funny and hilarious and scandalous but um very very good uh a christmas horror from 2015 krampus krampus who was this like dark evil version of santa claus coming from uh i think icelandic folklore um that is very very good and nice and scary and 
properly scary. This isn't like, ha ha, fun, fun. Well, a little bit. But no, it, it, it depends if you like horrors. I'm not a big fan of horrors, but Krampus is very, very good. I would scare the bejesus out of you. Um, there's another one stemming from that tradition, which I haven't seen, which is meant to be very good. Um, a Finnish movie called Rare Exports. And that's just from a few years ago. And apparently that's very, very good and involves the kidnapping of Santa Claus. And Santa Claus is not the jolly old guy we thought he would be. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get that rare exports. But my final recommendation is a French movie, a French movie, which is called in French, I think, uh, Un Conte de Noël, which translates as A Christmas Tale. And that is from 2008. And it's so, so, so unbelievably French. And it's this Christmas. It, it, it. You know, there are American movies that try to portray the crazy family get together at Christmas, people not getting on. I mean, National Lampoons have done it and there's Thanksgiving versions of that. And, you know, they're all fine. They're just a bit like, eh. This one is the real deal. This is a family matriarch finds out she needs a bone marrow transplant. She's played by Catherine Deneuve. And the family gather knowing this is hanging over them. And Matthew Amalric is in it. He is, I think, one of France's best actors of the last 20 years. Fantastic. Um, uh, Marcelo Mastroianni's daughter, Chiara Mastroianni, she's also in it. A great cast of French actors. But there's so much vitriol and dysfunction and sniping and messiness and arguing and fighting. And you just go, yeah, right. That's uh, That is definitely... A massively believable version of Christmas and it's quite long I think it's over two hours maybe even two and a half hours long but if you're looking for something away from the Hollywood stable and away from the Hollywood staples you could do much worse that's well worth checking out and I'm sure that would be easy enough to get a Christmas tale from 2008 so there you go there you are that's a lot of information and I guess if you don't like movies you wouldn't have been listening to this. <laughs> but if you do like movies, maybe I've given you some recommendations that um, you haven't heard of before. Or maybe I've reminded you of some. And I make no apologies. Uh, there have been no accidental omissions. If you didn't hear a cherished Christmas movie mentioned, that's because I don't like it. And I didn't want it here. Tarnishing my airwaves. So there you go. That is the lot. And now I'm feeling very enthusiastic about watching some movies. The Bishop's Wife, that has become my new tradition on Christmas Eve. When I'm in the kitchen, making up the stuffing for the turkey and doing some prep for Christmas Day cooking, I stick on The Bishop's Wife on my laptop in the kitchen while I'm cooking. And I absolutely love it. So there you go. Um, Okay. And that's it i'm out you can continue (laughs) you can continue to show me some love you can find me on facebook and instagram at the clear out podcast you can find me on twitter at the clear out 2 
You can email me at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. You can find me on YouTube at The Clear Out Podcast. You can support me financially if you're so inspired using the supporter link, which you'll find where you're listening to this podcast in the description. You can also use the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash The Clear Out. And today I'm going to leave you with my own. That's right, folks. You heard it my own rendition of Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I recorded it two Christmases ago as a surprise gift. (laughs) That's a gift in inverted commas. A surprise gift for my wife and my friend Tim Fry. Shout out to Tim, to Tim and the other other members of the Cabal. How are you guys? Um, Tim Fry played guitar and I sang and it's actually one of Tim's other musical incarnations that gives me the theme music for the podcast. Tim's had a couple of different musical um, identities. He was in a great band called The Adventure Spirit, which you can find you can find those guys on Spotify. And the song I use for the uh, for the, the 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 theme music for the podcast is one of Tim's songs that he wrote with his musical partner. Um, that's called Emoji, and that grouping was called uh, Echo Vista. So there you go. I'm Dara Clear. You've been listening to The Clear Out and this is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. I'll be back next week with some more special stuff. Take care. All the best. Bye.
golden days of yore. Faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more. Through the years we all will be together. And have 